John, between us, we have, I think, well over 60 years of spring training uh, in us. You spent the first week with the Mets. I spent the first week with the Yankees. Uh, I think we should talk about that on the show. Absolutely. A uh, very good vibe with Mets camp. As Steve Cohn pointed out uh, yesterday, there should be a good vibe. You spent $364 million plus the tax of over $100 million. Uh, there better be a good vibe. They obviously have a lot of big stars there. Senga was uh, certainly very interesting with some rough bullpen sessions early. Uh, got it together for a stadium uh, debut against the Stars, and uh, he looked good there. So uh, all positive here in Mets camp. And uh, the Yankees, uh, I think the Yankees and Mets are number two and three right now on the uh, Las Vegas hit parade in terms of odds. So a lot of positive stuff to talk about with the New York teams right now. The Mets and Yankees are number one and two in payroll. Maybe they'll be number one and two in excitement. Uh, this season, John and I will talk about our weeks with them to open spring training. Our special guest is Mike Elias, the general manager of the Baltimore Orioles. So we'll talk all things Orioles in the AL East. And we'll also play Hit and Error if you stick with us on the show with Joel Sherman and John Heyman. This episode is brought to you by Hyperice, the leader in advanced warm-up and recovery technology. They have tons of innovative products like Venom heated wearables to help soothe sore back muscles, Normatec compression boots to speed up recovery and increase circulation, and Hypervolt massage guns to improve mobility. Loved by athletes like Naomi Osaka and Erling Holland. Try them yourself. Get 10% off your order with the code MOVE at hyperrice.com. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. On the show with Joel Sherman and John Heyman and John, uh, not tremendously surprising news, but words put to uh, something perhaps obvious is Nezbolello, the uh, agent from CAA who represents Shohei Otani, uh, kind of strongly indicated that Otani will become a free agent at the end of the year. He said, if I, I'll give you the exact quote, he said, Shohei's earned the right to play through the year, explore free agency, and we will see where that shakes out. John, again, I don't think that's a shocking quote, except for that the agent, who usually hardly ever talks, did talk in this situation. What, what, what do you think of those words? Yeah, I mean, this was expected. I mean, we're talking about the most valuable player in the game, a uh, guy who's certainly going to set a record. I hear people speculating about that. I mean, there's no way, even if I was the agent, he would set a record. He's an incredible pitcher, incredible hitter. Uh, brings in a lot of money for the team through uh, sponsorship and signage. Uh, just a very, very valuable guy, and it wouldn't really be a shock if he signed with a team that had not made the playoffs since he's been there. You know, he's going to be a free agent. I, I, that's There's no question about that. I saw Ernie Moreno at the owner's meeting a couple of weeks ago. He said uh, they're going to try to sign him, and I'm sure they will as a free agent. But, uh, you know, the, the Dodgers are there. You know, the Padres will be there. Steve Cohn uh, will be there. 
the Giants, certainly they missed out on uh, Judge and ultimately Correa. This guy's going to set a record. And, uh, you know, I wrote a few weeks ago that uh, we're looking at $500 million, And you know what? It could be more than that. Yeah, John, I think what it sets up is something interesting. Not that the Angels weren't aware of this, but by uh, Nesbolello putting words to it, it kind of, what would their record have to be, say, on July 15th, where they say, look, we took our shot. We now know Steve Cohn's going to be involved. The Giants who were willing to go to 360 on 350, 360 on Judge is involved. The Yankees will probably be involved. The Dodgers who are trying to cut payroll this year, to your point, to do it. Do we have to trade this guy? And I wonder if that kind of hovers over this season that the Angels in about the first 80, 90 games of the season have a lot of work to do if they want to keep Otani all season. Yeah, I mean, I thought they should have traded him last year. They could have gotten a ton for him. Uh, they certainly still could get a ton, probably certainly a little bit less for a one year of playoffs versus two. You know, from talking to Artie Moreno, I, I don't think he wants to be the guy that trades Otani. I think he'd rather be the guy who loses Otani. I don't know if that's much better, but I'm sure they'll talk about it at the time. But uh, I think they'll, if they're anywhere near 500, you know, the division's tough. Texas is better. Seattle's good now. Obviously, Houston's the champion. Uh, if they're anywhere near it, though, um, I do not anticipate him being traded. Yeah. And uh, look, if he's traded, I think we believe both the Mets and Yankees were making phone calls about this uh, last year. And during the first week of spring training, John, uh, I was in Yankee camp for the week. Uh, you were with the Mets uh, for the first week of spring training. What uh, if I just threw out the question, John Heyman, what stood out to you the most uh, being around a team with that's going to have the largest payroll in the history of the sport? What stood out to you? <laughs> well, it's probably the top of the rotation, the top three guys, Verlander, DeGrom and Senga. Uh, Verlander, DeGrom, they drove together. Uh, they had lunch. I saw them fist bumping yesterday. Uh, that was a question in Detroit. You know, they obviously were not friendly at that time. Uh, Verlander explained it, I think succinctly and probably appropriately that they were young guys trying to make a name for themselves. And this is why they were not uh, close or particularly friendly at that time. And, uh, you know, they haven't denied that they really were not friends uh, in Detroit, but uh, I think they'll be able to coexist. And of course, then you've got Senga, who is the current Japanese star with the Mets. Uh, not that it will preclude them from trying for Otani, but uh he looks like a, a fitting in nicely early. Uh, certainly he needs to make some adjustments, uh, he said, to the ball and particularly the mound. He did better when he was in the stadium. Maybe that mound fit him better. Uh, he certainly impressed them there. Uh, he's had a couple of rough bullpen sessions that I watched. But, you know, Buck Shoulder said he's had many Japanese pitchers and they've all eventually adjusted. I wouldn't think it would be too easy to adjust to a different ball uh, with less tackiness and a steeper mound. But, uh they do it. Uh, the Japanese pitchers have come over, by and large, have been very, very successful. And that's what the Mets expect to hear as well. You know, John, I think with Scherzer and Verlander, we should keep in mind, you and I knew each other in our 20s. And, you know, we probably fought a little bit when we were competing against each other. Look, we're teammates now and doing a podcast together. So it's right. Uh, but shows. we were competing against each other. Yes. Well, I guess in a way they were competing and they were on the same team. But there, there's always a competition to be who's the ace at that point. At that time, Verlander was the homegrown guy was considered the ace. But uh, as we look at it now, they've had equal careers. I mean, they're pick one or the other. You know, if you look at their war, Verlander's, I think, got six more war, but he's played a little bit longer. So they're basically a dead heat right now. So maybe there's a little competition coming now, but they, they've certainly mellowed as you and I have. 
yes well maybe uh anyway they actually almost have exactly the same total of strikeouts also Verlander and uh and uh Scherzer uh you know if I were thinking about Yankee camp John is it's mainly uneventful uh which is hard to believe when it's the Yankees and they just literally uh in the last two days a guy who hit 62 homers showed up here and they spent $162 million on a, a number two starter behind Garrett Cole and Carlos Rodon. So this is really setting up about who plays where in their field. Uh, and does Donaldson literally hold on to third base or do the Yankees not see enough, especially with the bat where it's suddenly DJ LeMayu doing that? Does uh, Aaron Hicks do enough here to play left field to allow them to move around Oswald Cabrera, which is what I think they'd like to do, and stay out of the trade market or, the, or whatever lingering in the free agent market like Jerks and Profar. But I think by far the most interesting thing in camp is what they do at shortstop. Uh, the incumbent to some degree is Isaiah Kainafalefa, uh, Anthony Volpe, and uh, Oswald Peraza. And what do they do with this group of three? How is it decided you know, I used the term the other day, this is the competition that isn't a competition, but is kind of a competition. Uh, and I said that because, like, Anthony Volpe would have to so far blow them away to come from essentially double A and off the 40-man roster right now. So to me, this is about Peraza and I, I, Isaiah kind of Falefa to open the season. And if it really is Peraza, do the Yankees and Brian Cashman have to find trades for either kind of Falefa or Gleyber Torres to kind of thin out the herd here? Or can he find one for Donaldson where he eats a lot of money? Or do they release Donaldson if they really don't see it? I don't believe they'll do that. They seem to kind of still like him. But I think it, it's it's the six-week question here is who emerges at that vital position. Yeah, I, I don't see them releasing Donaldson. It's a $25 million. Uh, you know, I know it's been done. I know Robinson Cano was released, and uh, Steve Cohen was here talking about how he'll be off the books by next year. So that's another $20 million or 20 some million that they'll have to play with. Not that he doesn't have money to play with now and lose. You know, I think Hicks is probably – I'm not there, but I think Hicks is probably the favorite and left. Uh, at shortstop, it is interesting. Uh, Peraza was really good in that short time that we saw him, and – while Kiner Falefa was okay through the season, they didn't really trust him at the end of the year. So that there is clearly a question there. I think another question with the Yankees is that pitching depth. You know, obviously Montas happened early. We're, you know, we knew he was going to miss a month, but now he's going to miss more than a month. Good they signed Rodone. But, you know, in Mets camp, you know, you've got David Peterson, who to me is a viable starter, who right now is on the outside looking in. The Yankees have a question, I think, in terms of their depth. I know Clark Schmidt is a possibility, uh, depth possibility, but you, you need more than five pitchers at the major league. Very rare that you're able to go with just five starters. You know, Rodon was a big, big plus, but uh, I think that's another question. When the Yankees have a lot of questions, I know they're the second favorite in the on the odds board, Las Vegas odds board to the Astros, but uh, to me, they got a lot of issues. Yeah, they they certainly do. Obviously, they have a ton of talent here, uh, and. I, I would expect that they're always they've become really good at run prevention uh, and that they at finding pitchers like at this time last year, we didn't know if Cortez was a novelty. It turned out he was a star, uh, you know, so he he broke through. They're good at finding relief pitchers. I would just go back just to the shortstop thing for one second. I think that they should use Gary Sanchez as an example with kind of Falefa. Remember, 
that in 20, they realized that kind of mentally shot, physically not up to it. And Kyle Higashioka was the catcher in the postseason, uh, right, in 20. And yet they came back in 21 with Sanchez again. Last year, kind of Falefa, kind of like not mentally there, not physically there. And they ended up starting three shortstops in a very short period of time, Cabrera, Peraza, and Isaiah kind of Falefa. I think once you show that in New York, it's kind of hard to come back from it. Because to your point, John, you said something that was very interesting to me which was over most of the season, he was good. But as we know, the Yankees define themselves by something bigger than the season. And you have to be able to play the most pressurized games of the year. And if you have any questions, if a player can really handle that, I think you have to move on from the player. Uh, yeah, I mean, I have a little more faith in them than you did. You you picked it out early that he was going to be an issue, and he, and he was. So I, I give you credit there. The other thing is Peraza looked really good. I mean, he really looked like a very, very good defensive shortstop. So I, I don't know that it's necessarily all going to be about the fact that we don't think IKF can play in New York. Uh, I, I do think he can play elsewhere as a major league shortstop, but I don't think that's the whole question. I think Peraza is is really good. And uh, he could may prove to be uh, a quality start, starting shortstop. I'm not counting Volpe at this point. You know, I'm taking your lead there. You're there. I think that's a long shot. I thought it was a long shot, but I, I'm convinced. Uh, you know, the guy is the top prospect. He's going to be, they believe, a star at the major league level. I, I'm going to be shocked if he's their starting shortstop this year, at the beginning of the year anyway. Yeah, I, I look, he has a lot of admirers in this organization in a kind of Jeter-like way in that it's both on and off the field. They like him so much. John, why don't we wrap that up by just returning to Metcamp for one uh, second here, which is I think if there were any question about the Mets, it would be length of lineup, uh, success of lineup. Uh, being in the camp that still has Volgabach and Ruff and Escobar, et cetera, is this a – top flight going to score a ton of runs offense this season? I mean, I think it's an above average offense. Uh, I wouldn't say it's a top flight o- offense. It certainly would help, I think, if if Alvarez made the team as the DH. I, I don't think that's going to happen. I think they want him to progress as a catcher. I don't see Alvarez or Beatty, barring injury, being on the team. So that being said, you know, Vogelbach was okay. He's about what we expected. Ruff was absolutely a disaster last year. He needs to perform to the career norms uh, to ha- help that situation. But, you know, obviously they've got Alonzo, you've got Lindor, you've got McNeil, uh, you've got Nimmo, you've got Marte, which is another question. He had, um, you know, double groin injury uh, and surgery uh, that we found out about now. Uh, so there's an issue there. But, uh, you know, I think they have enough where they're an above average offense with maybe average at best power. But ways to do different things certainly was huge. They brought Nimmo back. That was the must-have in Buck's mind. And clearly, there was no alternative. You know, as they can talk about how they could have gone for Trey. Trey Turner wasn't coming to play center field. That wasn't happening. Good thing Nimmo was back. Um, he'll get things started. And it's a good offense. But uh, I think, the, obviously, the key to this team is right at the top of that rotation, as we talked about, with two guys on their way to Cooperstown. And whether they ever become best friends or not, they are Hall of Fame pitchers, and that that really is it. The two highest paid guys in the game, uh, $43 million, uh, Verlander and Scherzer. Uh, of course, they aren't the star of this team. We know that, Steve Cohn, but uh, they're among the stars. Yeah, you know, John, I think uh, we talked about it here. I think hovering over this season for the Yankees and Mets is when they 
they fired the bullet of uh, Francisco Alvarez and Anthony Volpe. They're two of the they're their two best prospects, but they're also two of the best prospects in the sport. A team loaded with great prospects is the Baltimore Orioles. There suddenly may be a threat in the AL East to the Yankees and others. And we'll be talking to their executive vice president and general manager, Mike Elias, if you stick with us on the show with Joel Sherman and John Newman. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. It's only a kick, a jump, a block, it's only a serve, it's only a tackle, a run, it's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Welcome back to the show with Joel Sherman and John Heyman. Uh, we're so pleased to be joined by the executive vice president and general manager of the Baltimore Orioles, Mike Elias. Uh, he's in charge of baseball operations for, I think, one of the most fascinating teams in the sport going this year because there was such a turnaround last year, Mike, for your team. Uh, you're 83 and 79, first winning record since 2016. So I'll start with a broad question. Uh, was that step one and you expect step two uh, this year towards maybe the playoffs or there, is there still a lot of growing pains when you start from as far back as you guys did? Yeah, I, I think that's a, a pretty simple way of putting it um, that we felt like um, we took a big step and there are hopefully many more steps ahead of us, um, probably increasingly difficult. Um, but look, it's not easy to um, rebuild an organization. Um, I'm proud of what, our staff has done thus far, our coaching staff, the front office. I mean, we came in at the end of 2018. Um, it was basically nothing but problems in the entire organization, up and down, um, international scouting, analytics, the farm system, um, all of that. Uh, we very uh, aggressively um, and I think rapidly kind of changed the way that the nature of the organization does business. Um, and you know, a few years later and and through a couple of really uh, huge challenges in the industry with the, the pandemic outages and the lockout um, and so forth have gotten to the point where now we're sitting here with um, the, the consensus number one farm system. We've got this young, talented team um, and, you know, we had a really nice uh, competitive season last year, didn't get into the playoffs, uh, but that's our goal this year. And to me, um, you know, the the nature of the American League East and the strength of the other organizations means that all the work I just described, it's really just gotten us back in the fight with these other four teams because there are four other incredible organizations in this division. And, um, you know, it's, it's kind of hard to say more than that in our division, but I feel like we're going to be mixing it up with all of them this year. And it's a, it's a much different feeling. And, um, you know, we're, we're proud to be able to say that. I mean, you took an enormous step last year. No question about that. To have a winning record from where you guys came, I, I think in early years, you lost 110 games. Uh, incredible. Uh, but some people 
still think, and obviously you have a great farm system and great, great prospects. So you're clearly on the rise. You're in excellent position. But for this year, you know, some people look at last year with the 83 wins as a little bit of an overachievement at that point. You mentioned playoffs. Um, is that is that really realistic at this point? Because you didn't really have the opportunity to add too much to the team. Yeah, I think it's realistic. I mean, it's definitely not um, assured or, or anything like that. I, I, you know, I think we have our internal expectations of kind of what our odds are, so to speak, and we like them. Um, so I do think we're going to be um, scrapping it up all year long to try to to try to get into the playoffs, and I imagine it's going to be tight. Um, but that's that's absolutely the uh, the goal this year. Um, I think um, you know if we fall fall short of that, we'll we'll feel disappointed and and be reflecting on um, things we could have done better. But I you know to me this this rebuild is not about 2023. We were doing this to set the organization up well um, for several years, and then also just kind of um, permanently in terms of the way it does business going forward. And, um, you know, that that part is uh, obviously more important, but um, we've got a really fun group of players here right now with more coming. And I think this group has a really good shot to play in October and 2023. But there's a lot of good teams out there, too. And that's why we play the games. Yeah, I probably should have mentioned this at the top of the show. J- John has got the lovely, if you're watching us on the Yes app, he's got the lovely background in Miami. Mike is in a, his office, I believe, in Sarasota, spring training for the uh, Baltimore Orioles. And I'm battling the sun here at the uh, in the Yes uh, TV booth at uh, Yankee Camp Steinbrenner Field. Uh, Mike, uh, it was hard to ignore that your season kind of almost had two parts last year through uh, May 20th, you didn't have Adley Rushman. And from May 21st on, you did 16 and 24, third worst record in the American League before he showed up, 67 and 55, sixth best. You would have made the playoffs if the, the season starts the day Rushman shows up. He was literally your first pick, I believe, in 2019. So very symbolic. How good of a player, leader are we talking about? And is he the tent pole for everything going forward? Yeah, it's kind of um, sound a little hyperbolic talking about him, but he was the first pick of the draft, and he was like a consensus generational college player, um, pro, you know, pro, best college catcher since Buster Posey, um, drafted higher than than Buster Posey, and a switch hitter, and um, very athletic. Was on the football team at Oregon State for a couple of years before shutting that down to focus on on baseball, um, and just a real. Um, emotionally stable, smart, uh, warm-hearted guy that um, his teammates love, and I think he makes pitchers better. Um, so, yeah, it was – it was uh, you know, he got up to a little bit of a slow start, but it was um, wonderful seeing him have a successful rookie season. It is a shame. He got hurt in spring training. Um, it was right around now, like the first week of spring training, although we had a different calendar last year with the lockout, and unfortunately that – cost us the first month and a half of the season with him. And so I, I, I'm happy to have him for the rest of the year this year. Um, terrific talent for baseball fans to to watch. I, I don't I don't know that you get to see a, a catcher kind of apply his craft like this in the way that he does all the time. So uh, having him kind of going into his prime in the next few years um, and being established as a leader on this team is very exciting. 
You you have the best uh, farm system right now, and and at the top it looks really really good. Um, you obviously had some high draft choices. It looks like you hit on uh, most, if not all, of them. What are your some of your expectations for some of the other guys that are right up there among the top young players in the game? Gunnar Henderson, uh, Grayson Rodriguez, Deal Hall, Westberg. I mean, you've got a, you've got quite a list there. Are they going to contribute this year? Thanks. I think a lot of them will. Um, you know, Gunnar uh, Henderson was the second pick in the 2019 draft out of a high school in Alabama. And um, he came up for a September call up last year and he looked great. Um, and, you know, he's kind of the number one prospect in the rankings in the sport right now. So, you know, you you, you uh, brace for some sophomore adjustments and, and slumps, but he's going to be, as of today, our plans are for him to play basically every day between shortstop third base and maybe some occasional designated hitter. So I, I think he's going to be um, a big part of this team. And as a rookie of the year candidate going into the season, very hardworking, humble kid. Um, Grayson Rodriguez, whom you mentioned was drafted before I got here. Uh, Dan Duquette and his scouts did a great job um, taking this kid. I think it was 11th overall and it wasn't a consensus pick and, you know, as a high school righty and, um, He's he's torn through the minor leagues and unfortunately got hurt last summer at a really bad time when he was getting close to being called up. Um, he pulled his lat, basically missed the rest of the season, and now is back healthy in camp. And I think that he just needs to show that he's himself. And um, you know, we're we're um, hoping he breaks camp in a rotation. And um, you mentioned a few others. We, I mean, we've got a lot of guys here, Colton Kowser, Jordan Westberg, Heston Kerstad, um, that were, were high picks, uh, position players. Um, it's a really deep system. Um, Baseball America uh, said it was one of the better farm systems they've rated in the last couple of decades. And, uh, you know, we're going to need that. I mean, we're, we're sitting here playing the Yankees and um, the Blue Jays and the Rays and the Red Sox. Um, and to me, this was, you know, step one. We weren't going to be able to do much of anything in our division until we loaded it with, with um, loaded the minor leagues with with a pipeline. And I feel like we have that now. And now we've got to translate it towards um, getting in the, getting into the playoffs. You mentioned uh, the players in the pipeline, and uh, you know, you mentioned Rodriguez and Hall. Uh, it it seems to be favorable towards position players, and I think the expectation was that maybe this offseason you would go and sign some pitching. And you did to some degree, Kyle Gibson and Michael Givens. Uh, and also Adam Frazier was your other major league guy, a um, um, uh, kind of flexible piece that you could move around. Why Why was this an offseason where you couldn't do more for the pitching, either through free agency or trades? Um, kind of a, a mixed bag of case-by-case case answers that I you know, I probably don't want to be getting into. But, I mean, we we I thought we were – very close on a couple of guys and then others um, it just didn't make sense. Um, And, you know, we're being with the same way we were strategic and careful about um, executing the rebuild. We are likewise applying a lot of that know-how I hope towards building the roster and the payroll over the next several seasons. And, you know, it's not something to be taken lightly. Uh, We saw uh, the market this year, um, we have a tremendous amount of internal options that we want to see kind of who blossoms. And you mentioned Grayson Rodriguez, but uh, Kyle Bradish had a nice debut last year. Um, Dean Kramer as well. 
um, Tyler Wells. We've got John Means coming back. We've got DL Hall. Um, and so we we brought in um, Kyle Gibson and also Cole Irvin, whom we traded for, um, to kind of stabilize that group. And one thing you can definitely say about those two guys is they've been among the um, league leaders in innings over the last few years. So I think it provides that stability. Um, but we're going to be um, you know relying on a lot of younger internal talent and kind of seeing what they do this year. But um, I anticipate that we're going to through free agency trade. And our internal guys make sure that we have the the pitching over the next few years to compete with this with this core position players that you know we've more or less drafted. You know, I didn't expect the uh, fairly small market Orioles to sign uh, Degrom or uh, Verlander. You were linked to Rodon. Uh, we were with Steve Cohn yesterday, and he remarked that uh, even he was a little bit surprised by the prices being twenty to thirty percent higher in general for the stars than he expected. Um, were the prices just higher than you expected? You, you moved that, uh, or at least the team moved the fence back 24 feet and a half feet, I think it was. And uh, I can remember uh, Judge and Stanton even saying that was quite a poke. And I thought I was anticipating uh, a lot of, or at least a few big, bigger signings. It, did the prices uh, shock you? And were you really in on Rodon? Um, yeah, I wouldn't say shock. I mean, it's good, healthy market. First year with CBA. Uh, we had some labor stuff behind us, the pandemic stuff, um, you know, and I think, you know, it, it makes sense. These teams that um, feel uh, that they're likely to to be, you know, in the World Series and they're who's their number one starter going to be, um, you know, the, we'll, we'll – um, be aggressive uh, with, with those guys to the degree that we've seen. It's, I think it's, um, you know, different for a, a young team that's kind of coming into its own. Um, and so, uh, you know, I, we, we were very involved and active all winter. Um, and I think that the group that we brought in makes sense for us and um, will provide the the stabilization and support that this young group needs. And, you know, we'll see where, where we are next winter as well. So, um, you know, it's a, it's a competitive free agent market out there. You got to outbid 29 other teams anytime you sign a player. So, um, you know, not, not easy to do sometimes. Micah, in, in some ways we're tiptoeing around the elephant in the room, right? Which is just payroll. Uh, you're in a division with the Yankees and Red Sox in specific, and even now Toronto's well over $200 million dollars. Uh, John Angelos, uh, your owner, uh, I believe over the weekend, suggested that there is going to be room to grow payroll-wise moving forward, maybe not to the top. Is that your belief, and what does that that mean for you guys? And and by by the way, can you compete if you don't? Yeah, uh, I'll start one at a time. It is my belief. Um, I I think the Orioles is a very interesting situation. I mean, you look at the prior payrolls, um, this is a team that had operated into, um, uh, I think, like the 150 million range at times over um, the the last few years, and there there are um, aspects of the market that have evolved specifically with the Nationals moving in and the Nationals blossoming, um, and stuff going on way away from the field that uh, are still sort of playing out, and we're going to find a water level on our payroll that I don't know quite what that is at this moment in time. And it's going to be very dependent on um, the revenues that we bring in and how the attendance bounce backs, bounces back after the rebuild. But, you know, we were brought here to 
kind of solve this and fix it. Um, the franchise was not in a healthy spot at the end of 2018, kind of overextended itself, um, had hit a wall. And I think we have a lot of um, very experienced, smart people that are kind of working on this project. And all I can say is I feel that we have moved it into a right, a good spot from our work the last few years. And I expect that we'll be able to, to do that going forward for the next few years. And that's going to involve building the payroll, hopefully with good signings, with contracts that make sense for us. And I'm hopeful that our Orioles um, payroll can start to resemble what it once did um, when the franchise is, is in a much healthier business spot. But that look, that takes time. And um, we've had some other crap happened the last few years with the pandemic and everything that that have have added an additional layer of kind of uh obscurity to to um you know what the what the business environment looks like for the Orioles but I, you know the, this team this group of players that we have I think that um you know we're going to generate some excitement and continue to build attendance payrolls um and get to where we're going to need to get to be um you know realistic uh, deep playoff World Series contender over the next several seasons. Um, but, you know, for now, it's something that we're doing carefully and gradually. You know, I have to compliment your clubhouse. Uh, your team had started to play well at the trade deadline last year, and you ended up trading your closer. Now, Milwaukee did that, obviously traded a much more accomplished, famous closer who was, you know, been with the team with a, a longer time. But when you traded Lopez, did you prepare the clubhouse for this? And was that a difficult thing for you to do? Your team continued to play well afterward, didn't quite make it, but, uh, you know, it didn't have that unfavorable response that we've seen before from these types of trades. Yeah. Well, first of all, I give uh, our manager, Brandon Hyde and the coaching staff a lot of credit, but also the players them themselves for just the overall environment last year. But um, in particular, the way the team um, was pretty pretty consistent all the way through the season in terms of um, certainly effort level, but also just kind of the the vibe that you mentioned. Uh, yeah, that was tough. This this is this uh, you know you learn these jobs are uh, hard. Um, you're you're competing against other organizations and teams. You don't have a crystal ball. Um, you got to make moves sometimes that aren't uh, totally intuitive. You can't be all in or all out. Um, all the time. And, you know, we were transitioning from a mode of basically talking about rebuilding to holy cow, we're, we're winning games. We're in the mix. This is great. And now we're thinking about the next couple of years um, and all, and you know, where the whole thing was going. And, you know, you see teams, um, especially of certain market sizes in the, in the middle to bottom half of the markets with the way the business is set up right now, they kind of have to, um, do a little bit of both at the deadline sometimes or, or or sell off a little bit while they're winning or what have you. And I think I'm not doing my job properly if um, not looking at opportunities that come along, not taking calculated risks. And uh, we made those trades. Um, to the team's credit, they kept playing very well. And um, we got a lot of pitching back that um, I think is going to help us down the road. And we also had probably most importantly players on the major league roster that we felt were kind of ready to backfill those roles and other people to give the repetitions to. So, um, you know, the, the structure of our business makes for some really tough decisions sometimes um, that results in, you know, trades that you don't really want to do. You've kind of 
hinted at it here and you, you were kind, you gave me some time last week on a story I was working on and you define the rebuild is over in Baltimore. You're trying to win now. Uh, usually that what comes with that with an organization like yours is an attempt to try to sign some of your core guys long term. Uh, I wonder if you're trying and you think you'll have success on a Rutschman, a Henderson, a Grayson Rodriguez. And also, is Cedric Mullen part of that or is he some version of Brian Reynolds who ultimately his clock is ticking towards free agency? And even if you want to kind of win now, you might have to be realistic if you can't keep him and move him. Well, yeah, all those love all those guys, um, Cedric included. Um, you know, as it stands right now, I think we have three more seasons with him. Um, I wish it was longer. Uh, we love him. He's homegrown. He's a great fit for our park. He's a plus defensive center fielder. Good dude. Um, and you know, I, I wish and hope he was there longer. In terms of our attempts um, to extend any of these players. Um, I feel it's important for me and trying to be effective in my job to not be blabbing about it. Um, I, I, I think it's helpful for people to understand that um, I, you know, I, I would be discreet if that's their desire as well. If it gets out on its own, I'll, I'll talk about it then, but I, I don't just my personal philosophies. I don't really want to be the one um, to, to reveal any of our attempts and in terms of their success, um, I, ho I hope, you know, I, I think you can um, make your own assumptions about whether we want to keep any of these players longer than um, what we currently are. I mean, this is a really good group of players. Um, I hope we can line up, but, you know, it's it takes um, it takes two parties and it's not easy to do. And I, I, I really tip my hats to the um, teams and players that are able to to make this work because it's, you know, it's it, it's challenging and um, the the business environment and the um, the market. Uh, you had the number one pick earlier with Rutschman. Obviously hit on that. That's great. And uh, Jackson Holiday was the number one pick last year. <clears throat> How tough a pick was that for you? I know you were in the St. Louis organization, so you're familiar with Matt. Was that part of the equation that Matt Holiday was such a great major league player? Or did you just separately decide that this was your guy? And I know he played a little bit um, there after you drafted him, I think did well. And, um, you know, I assume it was kind of between, I shouldn't assume, but Drew Jones was another son of a great major leaguer who was in the mix. Uh, did it come down to those two? And and what are your expectations for, uh, for Jackson? Uh, it was a tough pick in a good way. Um, really good group, like you mentioned. Um, and, um, Got to know the families very well. Um, these were really well-raised kids, which is important. And um, it, it wasn't that tough because we loved um, Holiday. I mean, it, to me, um, in terms of um, the hit tool uh, that we think he has, um, combined with the physical tools that he has, I mean, he throws, he runs, he's going to play shortstop. Um, uh, not something that very common in the last 10 years or so, honestly, from a high school shortstop. So, um, you know, when, when I see that, I kind of, uh, get excited and, um, you know, he, he is very mature. He's here in camp right now, which is, you know, not the norm for, uh, even if you're the first overall pick as a high school kid, um, they're not always uh, brought into major league camp. We thought he could handle it. It'd be a good experience for him. Um, the baseball upbringing is certainly, I think accelerated his kind of growth curve um, from a mental standpoint. And um, we'll see what he does. He had a really nice debut, got up to a ball 
um, had like 25 walks and 12 strikeouts, which is, um, I haven't seen that in a long time from a high school kid. So uh, we'll see where it goes. But uh, right now, couldn't be happier um, with the selection and having having him in the organization. Micah, uh, to wrap it up here, uh, you you signed a five-year contract at the beginning of this process. This is year five. We, before I ask, my, would you like to tell us if you've signed a new contract? If you're... Uh... <laughs> Thanks. I don't think I've even acknowledged the first one. So um, you can make <laughs> your own speculations. But uh, look, we're, uh, you know, John talked the other day. We're, we're all here. Uh, this was a, a really um, big project, in my opinion. I felt uniquely prepared for it based on the entire Astros experience, whatever you want to say about that. You know, it was a it was a very similar um, full rebuild, full organizational overhaul, learned a lot of lessons there. Um, good and bad. And I think it enabled us to um, apply ourselves very directly to what Baltimore needed. Um, I'm also from the region. I grew up in Northern Virginia before the nationals existed. Um, So I hope that this continues to be a a great fit. Um, You know, not all that's up to me, obviously, and we've got to continue to have success. Um, But, you know, we, um, came here wanting to make the organization as better as quickly as possible. It takes some pain, but I, I'm glad that I feel like the, the that part is over. And now we've got a new, harder problem to solve of how to make this team competitive in our division, um, healthy from a business standpoint. And um, it's very invigorating from a project standpoint to to be kind of at the helm of this. So um, I hope I get the chance to keep doing it for a while. Yeah, Mike, I, I don't think that many people know just how far the group has come from. Your first, you took over a team that hadn't been winning the first three years, 131 and 253, that's 34% before you win 83. You know, you're only two international players of any renown over the last 15 years are Jonathan Scope and Eduardo Rodriguez, No, nobody from the Dominican Republic. And here we are talking about you maybe uh, as uh, the head of baseball operations uh, with an Oriole team in the best division in the sport uh, being a factor. So, Mike, uh, congratulations on that. I hope your season goes well. And thank you so much for joining us on the show with Joel Sherman and John Heyman. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me on. This was fun. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. John, we're uh, here to play our favorite game to uh, close out a show, and that's hit or error. What, what do you got this week, hit or error? Well, I've done hit the last few weeks. I've got an error. In my mind, this was an easy one. Uh, the Milwaukee Brewers taking Corbin Burns, their ace, to arbitration 
I just don't get it. I don't think it's a good idea. He's obviously quite upset. The, the relationship is severely hurt by this. Uh, the Brewers are a team that's really outperformed via analytics, but sometimes you have to take the personal into account. I think that hurt them last year at the trade deadline when they traded Josh Hader, upset the entire clubhouse. Well, here they haven't upset the entire clubhouse, but they've upset their star of their team in uh, Corbin Burns, and needlessly so. And beyond that, I have another error for the arbitrators because this should have been an easy case. He should have gotten the same raise as uh, the other guy who finished seventh in Cy Young voting, which was Shane Bieber. That was clearly over the midpoint. Uh, I'm really not sure where they get the arbitrators from. I don't get it. It does seem like there's a big trend that the good players always lose and the lesser players sometimes win. The players, I think, if we do this, are 6-13 and 13 this year. Freed lost, Burns lost, Teoscar Hernandez lost. Seems like if you're looking for a lot of money, you lose. I'm not sure why that is, but uh, not a perfect system and not the right result for the Brewers to save a couple hundred thousand dollars. John, before I do hit my hitter error, can I just ask one question on that? And, and I, I, look, I basically side with the idea of Try to find a way, especially with your best players, not to have conflict. But at this point, arbitration didn't start last week. It's decades and decades old. Isn't the team allowed to try to win its case? And isn't it up to the agency to prepare a player and say, they're going to come in here with guns a-blazing, and they're probably going to say some stuff you don't like? And that's just a collectively bargained deal, that this is the way arbitration's done. And hey, for want of a better term, you got to have a thick spine. This is, if you don't, accept the, accept their last offer if you don't want to hear bad things. They're allowed to win win their case also. I, I'd like to hear what they said about him. He's, he's, he's won his Cy Young. He was seventh last year in Cy Young voting. Well, we know what they said. They, blame, they blamed uh, partially him for not pitching well down the stretch last year. I know, again, we could say, look in the mirror. You traded Josh Hader. You don't trade Josh Hader. The Phillies who went to the NL champion, uh, who were the NL champions don't even make the play. But I, I guess this is the system, and I just sit there and go, don't they have a right to try to win their case? They have a right. I just think it's uh, foolish. Yeah. John, my hitter error is, you're not going to be shocked, an error. And it's for everyone. I, I just don't understand when people pile on Steve Cohn and Peter Seidler. Isn't the bigger problem Oakland and Pittsburgh and Cincinnati? These are the rules. They're playing by the rules. If the rules are not acceptable, there's a CBA negotiated every five years, go to war, end the game, whatever you want to do. But like like this idea that somehow I would even take Cone out of it because obviously he's rich. Look at what Peter Seidler's doing and look at what the results they, they drew just a tad under 3 million fans last year. It will go over 3 million this year. They maybe have a team now good enough to outdo the Dodgers. The excitement around the team is great. You know, it probably says that regular super rich people can't buy teams anymore. You better be the kind who can kind of throw a lot at it and just do it for status and joy. But I always find it wrongheaded that the people who are going for it at the, t- the top are the ones taking the best, the most abuse. Yeah, I mean, you're, I'm with you 100%. Uh, that was my hit last week was the Padres and what a great job Peter Seidler is doing with that team. And uh, he should only be complimented. Uh, you know, obviously, I was at the owners meeting a couple of weeks ago. And, uh, you know, at least to me, and, and Steve Cohn talked to us yesterday at Mets camp, at least to him, nobody's saying anything negative. They're just saying, well, he's playing by the rules, which is what he said. And they complimented him actually for being accountable, which means, of course, they felt it was going to be 
uncomfortable for him. So I know I know there's talking behind the scenes about the fact that he is spending big. They should have expected this. And I think they did anticipate it to a degree. I think maybe they thought that 90 percent tax was going to discourage him more than it did. You know, I'm with you. They're playing by the rules, trying to win. Uh, certainly Peter Seidler is is looking to lose money this year. Uh, we know Cone is and give them credit. Yeah. To me, the other side of the coin is to me, Oakland. I, I mean, they're not even trying at all. At least Pittsburgh brought back McCutcheon. They did a couple things. The fans can hang on to, but you don't hear any complaints about the A's and or at least not lately. Uh, they're the ones that uh, the other owners should be complaining about. John, I give you straight A's for this show. You were outstanding as usual. Uh, and uh, we appreciate those who listen to our podcast, the show from the New York Post. Thanks, as always, to Jake Brown and Andrew Hartz for producing the show. Don't forget, uh, this show drops on the Yes app Wednesday about noon. Uh, and uh, give a subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Give us a five-star rating. And, of course, join us every week on the show with Joel Sherman and John Hayes.